Welcome to the DTP podcast for April 2015, volume 53, number four. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTP's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave. I'm editor-in-chief. The editorial this month looks at sick day rules and acute kidney injury. Um, let's start with the definition. What do we mean by sick day rules? Well, this is, this is a new thing. And of course, actually, for many of us, acute kidney injury is a new thing. So we're not talking about people being stabbed in the loins here. This is a new term for what we used to call acute renal failure. And there's a lot of work being done currently to try and mitigate against acute kidney injury. It's now recognised that perhaps as many as 15% of people admitted to hospital have problems which arise because of acute kidney injury. And so the idea behind sick day rules is that in patients who are at risk of developing acute kidney injury, so the elderly in particular, but people who develop certain illnesses or sicknesses, diarrhoea, vomiting, sepsis, then they really ought to stop those drugs that are slightly renal toxic, such things as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, diuretics. Those sorts of things ought to be stopped for the duration of their illness and until they're feeling better. So this whole idea of giving patients guidance on when to stop is all quite new. Yeah. What's happening nationally to to move this forward? So you've got the... Nice guidance that came out last year on acute kidney injury. You've now got sequin standards that require hospitals to be looking for and managing acute kidney injury. You have pathology labs who are being asked to develop algorithms on reporting changes in patients' EGFR. So there's lots of developments going here to try and really wake the NHS up to acute kidney injury and act on it before it becomes a problem. So lots being done to sort of detect the problem and monitor and highlight patients whose renal function may be deteriorating. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got patients who are out in the community being seen by their GP or their community pharmacist. What advice is being given to them? So there's work being done with pharmacists to uh, ask them to start being aware of this and talk about the sick day rules. Obviously, GPs themselves, when they're managing elderly patients who become poorly, would need to be aware that they ought to be stopping this medication I think it's difficult because sometimes these patients are very frail and elderly and there may be some unexpected consequences of this and some adverse consequences of this. I just ask myself if I've got an elderly patient who's hypertensive on an ACE inhibitor or a diuretic, I might think, well, you know, she's had an episode of acute kidney injury. Do I want to put her back on any of these tablets? You know, perhaps if her blood pressure is a bit borderline, would it be okay to leave her with a raised blood pressure? rather than manage it. And of course, that may have an unexpected consequence. Actually, her renal failure may become more significant because of that, and she may have a higher stroke risk because of a hypertension. So these, I think, are balances. And the difficulty we've got is that whilst we've got good evidence around the management of hypertension in the elderly, we currently yet don't have good primary care-based evidence that these sick day rules actually make a difference in primary care. And the absolute definition of the sick day rules is still being developed. There is some suggestion that you stop ACE inhibitors, ARBs, non-steroidals, as you'd expect. But what about other drugs? Because there are other drugs that are nephrotoxic. There are other drugs which you might worry about in acute kidney injury, things like metformin. But we haven't got a consistent message for all of them. Absolutely. And And we don't have any 
good evidence yet. You know, it it's it makes absolute sense, and one mustn't you know completely be Neanderthal about this. But medical history is littered with good intentions that actually in the long term prove to be unhelpful. It's an excellent direction of travel, but the final and finer detail still needs to be worked out in terms of what pharmacists, patients and GPs should be doing. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, this is something that's going to take a while to bed in in primary care. You know, we know how many elderly patients take drugs. This is going to take some sorting out and development. So watch, watch this with interest. Indeed. Thank you. Our first main article this month looks at a, another new drug for COPD, olodaterol, a long-acting beta-2 agonist. What's the claimed advantages for this one? The main advantage of this, this new drug is that it is just a once-daily preparation. Uh, interestingly enough, it comes in the same uh, inhaler as teotropium respimat, so it's the respimat inhaler that's used for this drug. And I say it's licensed now for the management of uh, COPD. So you've got the soft mist inhaler. It's a once daily administration. Presumably the outcomes, clinical outcomes, are effect on lung function and quality of life? Yes, I mean, those are the classic things that tend to be looked at in any drug uh, that's being licensed for the management of COPD. You want to demonstrate that you actually improve lung function and perhaps more importantly, you also want to demonstrate that patients feel better taking it. So in the longer-term studies, we've got evidence, and they, interestingly, they looked at effect on lung function at different time periods throughout the day, so in the first three hours after taking it, and then the, the trough just before the next dose is taken. So they looked at measures of lung function. And what did they show? One of the difficulties with this is, of course, it's a new drug. Uh, they haven't necessarily done any head-to-head studies with uh, other drugs, other long-acting beta agonists. So you're left having to look at the numbers. And if you look at trough FEV1, they demonstrate that it was about uh, around 80 to 90 mils higher uh, than prior to treatment or prior to or, or compared to placebo. Now, the difficulty with that is that's obviously an improvement, but most um, Studies suggest that you need at least a 100 mil rise in trough FEV1 for that to be significant. And when they did compare it, because I think they compared it against formoterol, both drugs made a difference in terms of trough FEV1, but they didn't reach clinical significance. But, but once again, neither of them reached clinical significance. And, and that's the story, I suppose, of, of this drug, is that if you look at a lot of the, the numbers that they, they tested, you see a significant increase in the numbers and that's statistically significant but if you ask yourself is it clinically significant did these patients feel better then most of the studies looking at things like the St George's questionnaire which gives you an idea of uh, quality of life really didn't quite hit the clinical significant mark. Now there are some shorter term uh, lung function studies which did show a clinically significant difference in terms of lung function but it was the longer-term studies that, that didn't. So it's quite a complicated picture that we're, we're, we're looking at. Other than that, harms presumably much as we'd expect for a drug of this class? Yes, I mean, obviously, with all new drugs, you don't quite know what the long-term harms are going to be until the drug has been used for some years. But uh, they were the typical reactions you'd expect to get with all of these sorts of drugs. So beware, QT interval, lengthening, tachycardias, that sort of thing but nothing particularly outstanding at the, at the moment. No. So overall, 
difficult to quite know where this sits. It's another labber on the market. It's a me too. And of course, this this part of uh, the market is absolutely burgeoning now with new long-acting beta agonists and long-acting muscarinic antagonists. So obviously COPD, fifth cause worldwide of uh, premature death and morbidity. It's a really important disease. And the drug companies obviously all want to be able to manage and treat it with their drugs. Okay, thank you very much. And lastly this month, article on prescription charges. This is something that we've visited a few times. So we thought we'd go back and report the results of a survey that we, we conducted. Obviously, prescription charges only relevant in England, been abolished in Wales, been abolished in Scotland, abolished in Northern Ireland, but something about a consultation about bringing them back in Northern Ireland? Yes, yeah, so I gather. I mean, I, I, this is, I think this is fascinating because it feels to me as if if you uh, work and live in England, uh, we've just got used to the idea of these prescription charges, but they become ever more complex. People will know that there's been a recent change. So now if you uh, have had cancer, you are, can get an exemption, and the exemptions become ever more slightly unusual uh, with certain things... Uh, such as hypothyroidism or hyperparathyroidism giving you exemptions, but other things like long-term conditions such as asthma, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, you don't get any exemption at all. And, of course, the bizarre thing is that it doesn't exempt you from that condition. It exempts you from all prescription charges. So it's not just the one relating to that long-term condition. Now, the argument seems to be that these have been in place for getting on for 50 years, some of these exemptions, and, and have never been reviewed or amended with it apart, apart from the addition of the, the, the cancer exemption and yet life has moved on we're diagnosing far more conditions people are living with long-term conditions and yet we haven't gone back and reviewed the exemption criteria so there seems to be something very odd about the arrangements in England that haven't precipitated a, a major major change there has been a, a national review that was commissioned that looked at alternatives for prescription charges but it hasn't been implemented so we are left with this rather bizarre situation of a small group of conditions for which you get everything free and then others for which you have to have to pay and it does seem that we expect those people to carry the cost on behalf of others so the survey that we commissioned was seeking views of healthcare professionals community pharmacists practice-based nurses and gps on the prescription charges and we we sent out by an independent company a a survey. And in terms of responses, were you surprised by what they said? I was slightly surprised because I I expected everyone to say, you know, they must go. You know, this is awful, they must go. And actually, the response from many, particularly GPs, was that, that, you know, well, actually, you know, they, they prevent people overusing drugs, whatever it might be, which, of course hasn't been the experience in Wales. So we've done, there's work has been done in Wales to look and see what happened when they removed the the charge. And you, they didn't see a huge increase in prescription drug use. So I think sometimes there's a bit of fear there amongst GPs that this would open the floodgates, but that isn't actually the uh, what we've experienced in any other territories who've got, who've got rid of their charge. So this idea that people value it more because they're paid for it, there's not a lot to support that in terms of outcome evidence. None at all, really, no. And the fact that we exempt a vast majority of people means that we don't accept that as an argument anyway. 
So why not review the whole process of prescription charges? I, th- I think that's right. And I think, uh, I think pharmacists, interestingly enough, were, were a little more concerned about them. And I think we're more aware that, for example, some patients will alter which prescriptions they accept on the basis of cost. They will actually perhaps you know, say, I'll only take two rather than the three items because of cost. And although there are prescription prepayment uh, certificates that you can use to offset the cost, they still have an upfront cost. And the process of getting them isn't entirely straightforward. Mm. So their use isn't universal. So overall, impression being that it's time for a review. I, well, I definitely think so. And I think the other thing that I think is really important is that increasingly now, actually, for a lot of these chronic long-term conditions where people are ending up having to have their prescription, their repeat prescription every month, the actual value of these drugs now has dropped enormously. You know, I think the average v- cost of a drug now is around nine, ten pounds, and now we've got a prescription charge over eight. So it's going to get to a point where the average value of the drugs you buy is going to actually be less than the prescription charge, and uh, I think that will start to put in place some pressures from GPs to prescribe privately or whatever to try and mitigate that. And if anyone's interested in looking at the full results of the survey or indeed looking at some of the background material, then please go to our website, dtb.bmj.com, and follow the link to the prescription charge survey. So thank you for listening. Uh, As ever, if you have any comments, suggestions, criticisms or compliments, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. And thank you for listening.